Right, my name is Liam Fassam, Associate Professor of Supply Chain, University of Northampton. Joining me today? I'm Joe Bellett, a Research Assistant with the List Institute, University of Northampton. Excellent. And we've chosen three topics to talk about today. We're going to dispense with the light banter and uh, get straight into it. So, one thing that caught my eye in the news this week, actually it was this morning, was the ability for consumers to scan their food to determine freshness using some sort of amazing science technology that's well behind my comprehension. However, Joe, I believe this is this is your area of expertise being the smart guy in the room. Is it possible? Can we do this? Can we use phones to determine freshness and integrity? Well, so as always, in theory, it works. But when it becomes more... Sorry, I read this and believe that this is actually going to happen. I'm going to go into Sainsbury's this afternoon. Sorry, other supermarket brands are available scan my food, and it will determine my freshness. Are you saying this is just theoretical? Well, as much as I hate oh. to say it, it's, uh, yeah, it's very theoretical, relies heavily on what your phone can actually do. And typically, I believe this is based on near-infrared LEDs. Essentially, the near-infrared spectrum can penetrate deep enough into the tissue of whatever produce you're looking at, uh-huh. and from that, ascertain essentially its composition. Is this a service that Instagram provides, or is this a... Well, five years from now, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, just add it to the business model. Uh, the issue with it being is most phones nowadays have mm. filters across their cameras that block near-infrared mm-hmm. LED, like the near-infrared light from being emitted okay. or from being detected. So without upheaval, so to speak, mm. of current technology replacement, um, mm-hmm. then no... Not tomorrow, not anytime oh. soon. So we were talking beforehand, you said there are bits that you can plug in your phone to make this happen, that you, you, yes. like ancillary devices that you need, so it's not... Yeah, essentially, in all the academic papers around it, you see diagrams of how they've set up their experiments, and all of them have sort of a tertiary camera over their existing mobile devices uh, camera that can augment the way it's perceiving okay. what it's seeing. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a faff, to say the least, at the minute. Faff. I suppose it brings up another question around the tech. Tech's really cool, and I think it's a great thing to do. But should we, should it be incumbent on the consumer to protect food supply chains? Why why should they? Why should it be down to me and my soup in the supermarket checking my food? Surely the supply chain and the suppliers within it should be trusted enough to do that for us. Why? Well, yeah, in an ideal world, but it comes back to, well, in theory, in an ideal world, as soon as they start making these these tests themselves, it's uh, it's going to reduce their margins, I imagine. Whose margin, sorry? Of the uh, suppliers. If they're going to have mm. to invest in new technology that, ooh, well, the consumer can just deal with this. So we then potentially are doing the great old supply chain shuffle of moving the risk from one supplier to another supplier to actually to the consumer. Mm, exactly. It's it's up to us to determine whether what we're receiving in terms of fresh produce is fresh. I wonder where the, wonder where the boundaries stop on that because this, as you know, they've got an interesting fraud running the speed this morning. <laughs> so this is about food. Can this type of technology be used elsewhere? So there's been lots of there's been things about car manufacturing plants, and I'll keep the brand out of it, where they've had fake brake parts infiltrate the supply chain and on their own production lines built cars with brake parts. Is it therefore 
my responsibility as a driver of said car to check that the brake parts are legitimate and if they if if they crash into a wall and something happens because i didn't check the integrity i mean it's yeah no you you're completely right it's where is the line drawn here mm. i suppose it depends on perceived ease for us checking ourselves so in the case of the car obviously you're not going to go around ripping apart your new car just to make sure everything's legitimate as you say you assume that that risk is on the mm -hmm. manufacturer it's their responsibility so why is it different when it comes to food i don't know i really don't know it, 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 there's quite a question i always put in my mind all the time is why are we so lackadaisical with food and supply chains it's something we put in our mouth um, and we just seem to be not concerned about what's in it i mean one of the things that i pick up around this that I think is quite cool, if we could get around the tech piece, is the ability to be able to look at the calorie content and the freshness of the food. So I wonder, predominantly around freshness, whether this means that we can get away from this horrible process that we have of um, best before dates. So actually, instead of having something in the fridge that says, actually it went off yesterday, therefore I'm now scared to eat it, but really it's good for another five days. Could this actually reduce food waste? Yeah, it's a very good point. I can't see why it wouldn't. I suppose as well when it comes to the science behind it, all I really know is how it works. Where the thresholding sort of comes in to determine how fresh something is, mm. how necessarily accurate that is going to be, whether it's a binary classification mm -hmm. of fresh, not fresh. Um, I'd be interested in seeing, would it, as you say, with uh, best before dates, mm -hmm. would it actually tell me how much longer I have to eat it? Or is it just a case of, oh, no, don't go near that now. Mm. Oh, you missed it. Mm. And then the calorie content would be quite cool. We all mm. use apps to track stuff these days, such as fitness. And there's one very well-known one that I actually genuinely can't remember the name of it, but it's developed by Under Armour, where you can put all your foods and stuff in there and see just exactly how much of a bad person you really are. But oh, it's okay because yeah. you go running, so you, you offset it. Could this actually change the whole sort of social mediaization of your life mm. in terms of look at me, I can now share on one of the social media platforms I'm eating a fresh cucumber from <laughs> grown in China or something. Yeah, well the issue I always had with those is you say the fitness app is I just couldn't do it. I couldn't spend five minutes after a meal tapping everything in. So oh, sorry, I, I thought you meant you couldn't do the fitness. I didn't oh, well, no. Okay. I mean, I didn't want to admit that. Oh, okay. Yeah, you've <laughs> thrown that out. <laughs> 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 anyway, so I think the, the the whole thing around technology is quite cool. As we, in summary, on this, are you suggesting then that the tech is there, but it's not there in terms of the mainstream user, but in a closed lab? Mm. Yeah, it definitely. is possible to be it's, done. It's possible to be done uh, given future generations of mobile phones. If this is something considered mm. by manufacturers of the devices then sure I can't see why not but currently as it stands I think component prices are too high for near infrared LEDs mm -hmm. um, and it's just it's a very nice idea in theory it works mm -hmm. but in practice as is usually the way how do we now take these next steps to go from proven concept mm -hmm. to actual mm -hmm. delivery and who's going to pay for that mm -hmm. in terms of the value add yeah very true I suppose if you're a free if you're you were the manufacturer of a refrigerator and you can build some of this cool tech into somebody's kitchen mm. it might work quite well rather than 
trotting around supermarkets taking pictures of cucumbers and firing them back at the uh, city. That's a good point. You've got the smart fridges now that keeps a list of everything exactly. you've got. Cameras on the inside and you can have a little freshness mm-hmm. indication for all of your produce. Yeah. A bit of uh, computer vision in there too. You're, you're sat at work and it reminds you that you have a product that's about to go out, out, of, out of date today or, or it's looking a bit dodgy. We'd recommend you have this meal exactly. tonight. How cool would that be? <laughs> It would take my decision-making process tonight of beer and pizza away from me, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So technology is there, technology is cool, and it can do some really good stuff. But I think the overriding thing is it's not there yet, but it shouldn't be discarded. Yeah. Brilliant. That's a cool one. That's nice and easy. I quite like that one. So you had a, if you want to introduce this one, Joe. Oh, yeah. Second topic, topic of the moment. Of the day is Honda being set to close their Swindon car plant. Are they? I hadn't heard that. Sorry. Amid Brexit concerns, I believe is... Actually, sorry, Joe. Yeah, it, we have a rule you're not allowed to mention Brexit. So, on the oh, it's... I'm so sorry. I seem to have missed that yeah. memo. Okay. Is there something we prefer? No, we've said it now, so oh, that's, uh, it's, it's done. cat's out of the bag. Yeah. Mm. Okay. It's a bit like, yeah, I could draw a really dodgy analogy here, but I'm not going to. Okay, what about it then? Well, Why? Why? Why is it closing? I hear there's some some theories being thrown around. Loads of theories. Is it Brexit? It would be a good excuse if you wanted to downsize your company, wouldn't it? To use the cloak of a in our other favourite term, geopolitical risk, which is Brexit, to to get rid of or divest operations. Mm. So you know something's going on, you can quite easily blame. Although you must be said, Honda haven't actually blamed Brexit. Let's be clear with that. They haven't mm. said that. But you could, one would assume. And if you look at a lot of the press at the moment, they are suggesting that that is the main reason for it. Even though the person that's closing the plant, owns the plant, is saying it's not. Yeah. Which is rather bizarre. I think the numbers behind it as well sort of support it's not necessarily Brexit concerns, but. Who's to say? This is, I don't know, I'm falling on the sword a bit here. This is good old-fashioned supply chain management. The company have seen that by centralising their supply chain and bringing manufacturing into one location, they can manage inventory better, they can manage processes better, which means they eradicate waste, products become cheaper, and all of that is far better for the company when they trade it off and in having to ship finished goods across the world. So it's clearly cheaper for them to centralise production and then ship stuff in its finished goods, and it is to have lots of regional manufacturing sites. Mm. I'm not going to chastise them for that. I know there's a lot of jobs going. It's way beyond 3,500 jobs. But it's what we espouse. It's what companies do all the time, and they, we, they, they should do it. And it's if it happened more, products become cheaper. So that's, that's the only thing, reason I can think of for them doing it. Yeah, fair enough. I suppose, yeah, you have... A comparative wealth of experience in this field. Um, Not an automotive, uh, I don't. Well, yeah. <laughs> building point. a car, building a computer, there's the same thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, parts, yeah, bring them yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Expensive Lego? Very expensive Lego. Mm. I think the key thing about this is the, and it does link into some of the stuff around Brexit, is the parts. Because a lot of these manufacturers, they're not actually physically making the parts in the plant at Swindon. A lot of these parts are coming in from overseas, from from places like Germany and and, and elsewhere in the UK as well. There's a huge supply chain going on behind the scenes with this. And because there are other motor manufacturers in and around Swindon and Oxfordshire and and elsewhere in in the West Midlands, 
there's an economies of scale piece here with automotive. And if you, if you lose a significant volume of that, it potentially has knock-on effects to other motor manufacturers in the area, then you could make it uneconomical to manufacture in the region. So this could have a knock-on effect for other motor manufacturing plants in the region. I see. Potentially. So following that, is there any steps that could be taken, in your opinion, to sort of prevent this knock-on effect occurring? Anything sort of governmental... Well, imagine this thing. What you could do is you could you could you could have a tariff-free zone, which means that you're not paying any import duty on the parts. I mean, I, I, oh no, we do have a tariff-free zone, don't we? Okay, so we're actually going to make it worse by putting a tariff on board. That <laughs> mm. <laughs> we said we wouldn't mention. I think that there's no easy way to fix to fix backfill this because it's such a specialist amount of product. Uh, so in short, no, there's, there's nothing you can do with this apart from ensure that the other supply lines that are coming in are well looked after. Uh, although I, I joke a little bit about the tariff-free zone, it's really relevant in this because if, if, start, if those motor manufacturers have less volume to play with and now have tariffs, it is the perfect storm for other people to say, I will too centralise my vehicle manufacturing and move it elsewhere. We've seen it with Nissan. Again, they put it down to, well, not to Brexit, the, the changing market. And there's another thing we need to, to think about as well is there's a big push at the minute. Everywhere you look at is talking about autom autonomous vehicles, electrification of vehicles. As this technology and innovation develops, more and more production plants will shut down. Yeah, for sure probably noticed as well a big smile just spread across my face yeah. at the, the thought of autonomous vehicles but for another day perhaps but it's but it's where we're being pushed mm. so as technology develops we're almost pushing ourselves out of work in this area and one of the issues you ask what can governments do to bridge this well the governments need to invest money to ensure that we as a country have the skills the technology the infrastructure mm. to be the leaders in this field yes I currently don't see that, although in fairness to the government, there's a lot of money going into research around batteries and, and all sorts of great stuff like that. So if you wanted to be a leader in this and you wanted to be a, a serious player and backfill all of this automate, all, automotive stuff, as you would say as a government, I'm going to put money into skills that's starting at schools, colleges, universities, which I currently don't see enough of that. I mean, you went to university, Joe. You studied computer. What, was it the largest course at that university? Or? Uh, no, it wasn't. No, no. But it would be in this context a critical mm. skill. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, and it, as you say, with the upskilling of the nation, essentially for these new job prospects and mm. the sort of almost narrowing horizon, everything is moving towards technology. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's some quite good articles out there about the, sort of the risk of your job soon being taken by technology. Mm -hmm. And sort of many, many, many jobs have sort of an upwards of 90% chance, I think, within the next 20 wow. to 30 years of just being lost to automation. And yeah, now I can't even begin to think of what that landscape mm -hmm. would look like in regard to what skills, what the, where the skill gap is. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a huge skill gap. I mean, we, we talk about it a lot in logistics and automation, the changing face of logistics, and I suppose it comes nicely into the next topic 
around the fear of disruptive technology mm. is there is there is a fear, especially in logistics, because it's a uh, we take very much on a some of the people take a very much an old school view of this, and if we have automation coming in, then it's going to eradicate all the jobs. But we still need people to maintain and fix the robots, and we still need people to build warehouses, and we'll still need mm. people to do. There's still an element of human intervention. So, why is there a fear of disruptive technology? Well, I think part of it is the scale of intervention, as you say, around the human aspect. Is uh, say you need two robots for every one human, which is unlikely. You probably need one to one or less than mm-hmm. just from Factors like robots don't get tired, robots can keep working. Um, but we will not need the same size workforce to maintain a same uh, similar sized workforce of robots. Mm-hmm. It's that more robots are typically more reliable, um, the intervention is going to be comparatively minimal. Uh, but further risk is just around, I think, an issue with disruptive technology is disruptive. You don't want your business, your procedures being disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a great fear around disruptive technology just being disruptive as opposed to augmentary to what you're mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that needs to change around the perception of disruptive technology. I think it's frankly an awful name for it. You've mentioned before the name, disruptive, mm. it's awful, isn't it? Yes. It has a connotation of bad, yeah. which you've said before. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't really. I don't know the sort of the etymology behind the term, mm. but I, as I say, I can't say I agree with it at all. It strikes fear into the hearts of business leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a few companies that are really embracing it. So you have the tech giants that are buying up all of these startup companies that are focusing around various pieces of disruptive technology across and all manner of sectors. But then you have the sort of the businesses that can't almost afford to take the risk. Mm. Because the perceived risk is a lot larger than what I believe it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, within supply chain management, if you're implementing a new management system, automated management system for transparency across your supply chain, if you've done your research around it, you trust the solution, you know it's going to work, you know it's going to integrate fine, you know that your staff are trained on how to use it. Mm-hmm. Where are the primary risks at that point? You need to mitigate the risk of the technology before implementing, and you need to put in that work. But that work is not happening at the minute for a lot of companies, I don't think. And it, it, so on that, and using the data to mitigate risk, and I'm a big fan of using data to do that, is there a risk of not understanding, too many use of the word risk there, isn't it? <laughs> is, is there a potential of risk a, a risk being misunderstood and secondly the technology may be misunderstood more so because if you look at a lot of the industry presses it's all almost rolled out in some cases as the silver bullet solution and i'm going to pick on blockchain now just because i was reading something about it this morning and it links back to the food piece if we look at the food supply chain 90 i believe it's 96 percent in Europe, 96% of the actors in the supply chain are what we call an SME. And then we go, the further up the supply chain we go, the smaller and smaller the company gets, the less technologically reliant they become. And I'm not suggesting farming doesn't rely on technology because it, it massively does in terms of growing crops mm. and, and doing stuff. But 
entering DNA profiles of cattle or DNA profiles of seeds isn't what the farmer's core competence is. And that's not where, for them, the best use of technology is. The best use of technology for them is reducing the amount of water used, reducing, uh, increasing yields and reducing waste to make, sure, to make sure they can get the biggest bang for their buck in terms of feeding the nation. So how do we ensure that the transfer of technology is correct? So when we're downstream a, a retail organisation mm. and we're implementing a blockchain solution, it's only as good as the data you're putting in. But I'd argue that not every actor can input the data. So is there any use in having it? Yeah. No, so I, I completely it, agree. That, like... that's, that's the risk, as you say, it tied back to the food piece. And it also um, ties back to our prior point of upskilling. Mm. Is The skills aren't there for tech-heavy solutions. And there's two ways around it, really. You can either upskill those using the technology, or you can present the technology in as user-friendly a way as possible. You can design it around the knowledge that people using it aren't necessarily using these kinds of technology in day-to-day -day life. So what about, if we park that piece for a second, you mentioned about lots of startups mm. and there's, there's an incubator for the transport systems catapult just down the road in Milton Keynes that has lots of technology startups and they're doing a great job in, in, in fostering an environment of collaborative tech for SMEs there. And we've seen this with some of the projects we're doing. Is, is there an issue with having this startup philosophy that we've got too many small people doing too many things, which is actually ruining the credence of technology? Or is there an over-reliance on the giants that are not allowing these SMEs with great ideas to, to come through? I mean, it's a very good question. I'm not sure I can do it complete justice in my answer, but I think around there being many startups, there is a lot of risk of overlap. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are sort of racing to the solution for one problem. Yep. And one of those companies is going to be a massive success. Others may find success. There may not be any success at all for anyone. It may have been an overestimated gap in the market. Um, but as for the tech giants, I think there is danger of a few companies controlling masses of influential pieces of technology in our day-to-day -day lives. What was that stat you had around supply chains, the, the software and supply chains, I can't remember, I'm not going to do it justice, and you, you sort of sourced it. Okay, uh, caveat on this, off the top of my head, it might not be completely accurate, but I believe it was 56% of all yeah. um, sort of warehouse management systems were being run by the top six, right. sort of the sizable, biggest six companies, yeah. yeah, and that doesn't, that speaks to sort of numbers as opposed yeah. to market share of those companies mm -hmm. as well, so... In theory, bigger operation, you're going to use a tried and mm -hmm, tested mm -hmm. solution. So it's likely that it's actually a larger than 56% of market share is being managed by six or so warehouse managers. So unless, so effectively then, coming back to the point of the disruptive disruptors in the industry and people wanting to come out of the university with a great idea and wanting to kick off, it's very hard for them to penetrate the boardroom of a large logistics company because they've already got a turnkey out-of-the-box-ish solution from one of the top six that are controlling, let's just call it a large proportion of the market. Yeah. We get tied up in numbers yeah. because there's an interpretation to that. But significant market share. Mm. Therefore, it makes it incredibly hard for really good solutions to come through. Yeah. Especially innovative solutions to come mm. through. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I would suggest. It. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and that that ties back into the the risk of this this topic of reluctance to disruptive technology because mm. tried and true out of the box solutions are not disruptive. It's these startups that are trying to disrupt the market, mm. um, and this is one of the issues. There is a great uh, sort of negative view of these startups as mm-hmm. well. We we're not going to take the risk on you, but why would they, I suppose, if what they've got is working, but then it speaks as well to the stagnant state of the market where nothing is developing, nothing is changing. It's um, sort of old age ideologies around yep. supply chains. We've done it this way for years, therefore we'll continue to do it this way. Mm, exactly. That, that was why, 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 was it, if it, is, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Mm, exactly. So there's a perception it's not broken and there's a great thing where there, there is a I always run on the I don't know it because I run it in business like it but the, there's almost this plan to fail mentality in supply chains where we accept an amount of waste we accept an amount of inefficiency it's, it's a cost of doing business and nobody really has the balls to address it if I'll be quite frank yeah. because it's just yeah, we just we, we've done it this way for years we're still making money so we'll just carry on doing this yeah and on your point of it's not broken, so don't fix it, what is their definition of broken? Exactly. As you exactly. say, it Exception. includes this this buffer, essentially, mm-hmm. of failure. Whereas if you've got this new innovative piece of disruptive technology that can, mm-hmm. it's just assume, deliver improvements on those metrics, mm. it's not going to show as any great improvement because it's still within the bounds of what is acceptable. A great example of that, in fear of upsetting many people in the haulage industry and logistics industry, is inefficiencies in capacity. And I'm not suggesting that all capacity me- measurements are the same because I get like, there's a great stat kicking around Europe that all 50% of all vehicles run around empty, but you, know, you can't put pallets of computers into a milk tanker. So there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of you know, a bit of managing the, the message there, I suppose. But Lots of people complain when local says there's a real with, with this disruptive technology. I believe there's a, a disconnect between governments, academia, practitioners, practitioners and operators, where academics are saying one thing, all this blue sky theoretical stuff that yeah, it's all really good, but potentially won't work in real life because it's never been tested. Local authorities are doing something about um, air quality, which is the point I'm trying to get to as an example. They got to reduce air quality because they're being measured by the government and the European Commission and need to reduce it. So they they then in turn with other local bodies say we need to reduce the number of trucks in the town centre. The trucking companies turn and go, oh, this is really unfair. How am I supposed to deliver to a store in the town centre? Yet for years and years and years, we've had load sharing platforms. So the technology is there to be able to share capacity on the empty vehicles running around and in a collaborative manner use technology, I won't call it disruptive, but use technology in a way to meet better efficiencies and better air quality. But we're not using it, yet we complain when practices are put in place to stop us going into cities and creating it. So it's kind of this self-perpetuating beast. Yeah. If that makes if that yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It's, it's it's quite stunning to see, sort of, I've noticed quite a, a disjoint, I suppose, between academia and practice. 
Mm. Is sort of in theory we can be doing this, and these solutions out there can improve your operations by this amount. Mm. But no one's doing it because of the inherent risk behind, or the perceived risk behind yeah. disruptive technologies, despite the fact they are just as tried and tested as the out of the box solutions. But as you say, if it's not broke, why, why fix it? I suppose on that note, then, that gives us a job to do <laughs> as, as academics to go and try and scratch our head over lunch now and work out how we address this. But I think in closing, and there's, there's three topics intertwined quite well together, and technology runs across all of them. I don't suppose we know what the answer is to it. I'd be quite interested to see how we get over this, this gap between perceived perceive risk, actual risk, and embracing of technology. It's uh, something for another day, but I thank you, Joe. No, thank you. Very interesting chat as ever. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at uni for logistics and at societal underscore. We'll be back next week with a new episode, but until then, goodbye.